Our scripture reading is from 1 Kings 18, verse 45, through chapter 19, verse 8. This is found on page 301 in your pew Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, please take one of the ones that you see in the pews, the black ones. Um, Take that. That's a gift from us to you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went into the strength of the food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Kellen, for reading God's word for us. Uh, My name is Bill Gorman. I'm the campus pastor here. I'm really glad that you're here with us this morning. And again, if you walked in uh, a little bit later here, you, you maybe noticed that this room looks a little different than, than it sometimes does, that we're missing a lot of pews. Um, I'm actually surprised that some of you didn't just sit down on the floor where you usually just sit. I know we kind of like our spots on Sunday morning. And some of you are sitting on your normal spots, and now all of a sudden that's the front row. Um, so sorry about that if you don't like sitting in the front row, uh, if your normal spot has now become the front row. This is just for this week. We had some electrical contractors in here working to rewire some of these chandeliers and rebuild them so that they're safer, more efficient, and they had to bring a lift in to do that. So just for this Sunday, um, we had to move some of those peas out to allow them to do that work um, together. So uh, two notes about that. One, if you need to use the women's restroom, ordinarily you would walk through the doors on this side of the room, but as you'll see, there's lots of pews in front of those doors. Uh, So you just make your way down the steps on this side of the room, and our children's ministry team will get you across uh, to the women's restrooms underneath um, there. And also, uh, when we get to communion later on in the service, we'll do that a little bit differently. We'll have all the communion stations down here in the front, as opposed to some of them uh, being in the back. Um, Before we look at this passage that Kellen read for us just a moment ago, I'd love to begin by praying and asking God to speak to us uh, in this text uh, of Scripture. So, Father in heaven, we're thankful that you have given us your word as a gift that you have spoken to us, that you have recorded your speech in a way and that has been preserved for us, and that you continue by the power of your Holy Spirit to uh, speak through it to us. And we ask now that that would happen, that your Spirit would be at work um, speaking to us through your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, when's the last time that you were disappointed by God? Has there been a time in your life when you felt like God has not provided like you'd hoped? Or when everything seemed to just be going so well, and then all of a sudden, or, or maybe slowly, incrementally, but things just seem to start falling apart. And, and you can't seem to get ahead. And every step forward is, feels like you're taking two steps backwards. And you start to feel alone. Like maybe God doesn't care. And, and maybe this morning you, you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian or, or you, maybe you wouldn't even be sure that you believe that there is a God. But I'm sure you've had the experience of, of being disappointed with what you expected, that, that there was something you expected from life, of how things were supposed to work, and you found that your life has not met those expectations. That there's a sense of, of rightness of how things ought to work, and yet there's a gap between the life that you actually live. This experience is, is common to all of us, I think, at some point in our journey of life. Now, if you've been around Kansas City for a while, you know that increasingly Kansas City is known as an entrepreneurial community. And in the experience of this kind of disappointment, this frustration, this despair, it is so common in the difficult work of entrepreneurship, of starting a new venture, a new company, a, a new nonprofit organization. And in fact, there's even been a term coined to talk about this, this nearly universal phenomenon of despair uh, that comes in the process of starting a new venture. It's, it's called the trough of sorrow. That as you begin this, this new thing, whatever, whatever it is, this company, this nonprofit, this social service organization, whatever it is that you might be starting, there's this initial phase of excitement and energy but then that begins to fade away and you enter into this trough of sorrow. Uh, one writer commenting on this trough of sorrow put it this way. He says, getting through the challenges following the initial excitement is hard, really hard. When you're consistently one month away from failure, it can wreak havoc on anyone's mental health. The fact is depression, anxiety, extreme levels of stress run rampant in the startup community. But until recently, nobody has talked about it. And as I've talked with entrepreneurs in, in our community, people who have started companies or are in the process of doing that, this trough of sorrow reality resonates deeply with them. But as I've thought about the, all of our lives, I imagine that this isn't just true in the startup world world. That the, this trough of sorrow can manifest itself in many different kinds of situations. Hey kids, imagine that you uh, are trying out for a new sport or signing up for a new club at school. And initially there's this, this excitement about this new thing and going to practice or going to meetings is fun. But then after a while, it just starts to feel like work and the practices and you realize you weren't as good as you thought you were at the beginning, and you enter into this trough of sorrow. Or think about relationships, friendships, marriages, partnerships in the workplace. There's this initial phase of, of excitement and joy and happiness. And that, that may even last for months, even years, but then there 
comes almost inevitably in a, in a relationship, a time where there's this sort of this trough of, of sorrow. And maybe it only lasts for a few weeks, but maybe it lasts for months, even years, where it just isn't fun like it used to be. This disappointment with God, this trough of sorrow, it can lead us into despair, even into depression. And Elijah was there. And you heard it in the text that was read. Elijah asked that he might die. It's enough, Lord. Take my life. We've been walking with Elijah these last few weeks and exploring his story. And he was a prophet at some of the ugliest, darkest times in God's people. God's people had rejected Yahweh. That's the the personal name for the one true God of Israel. They had rejected him or serving Baal, a God who demanded abuse and mutilation, immorality, even child sacrifice. And God's people were doing such evil things and they were being led astray by this wicked king, Ahab, and his even eviler wife. Or is that more evil? I'm not sure. His even more evil wife, Jezebel. And this nation is absolutely being run into the ground. And today we're in 1 Kings 19, if you want to follow along. And you see, Elijah, he's one of these biblical figures, these people that we think about as a biblical hero. And he could pray and the rain would stop for three years. That's been happening. It hasn't rained in three years until last week in the story He could miraculously feed a woman and her son indefinitely. He could, when her son dies, pray and the son would, would raise again. And then even more than all of that, last week we, we saw how Elijah triumphed over the 450 prophets of Baal that had gathered on top of Mount Carmel for a, a showdown between Yahweh and Baal. Elijah, the king Ahab, the the people of Israel, all these prophets, they gathered on top of the mountain, and the prophets of Baal, they yelled and they screamed and they cut themselves for hours, and Baal did nothing. He doesn't respond at all. And Elijah, he taunts them. You know, what's wrong? Is Baal asleep? Is he using the toilet? Maybe he's on a trip. And nothing happens. You see, Baal is weak, he's nothing, and he's been found out. And then Elijah goes to his altar and he completely saturates it with water. And then he says one single prayer to Yahweh, the true God, our God. And there's fire from heaven. Even the stones are consumed. And the rain begins and the drought is over and his people are saved Things are beginning to turn around. Ahab sees it. Israel sees it. Yahweh is God and there is no other. That's what they say. That's what they proclaim. And so imagine Elijah in that moment. The relief, the excitement. At last, things are beginning to change. I mean, this was Elijah's Red Sea moment. Earlier in Israel's story, God used Moses to lead his people out of captivity in Egypt. And as the people are fleeing, they come to the Red Sea, and these armies of Pharaoh are coming up behind them. It seems like there's no way out. And then the Red Sea parts, and the people walk through 
on dry ground. This is that kind of moment for Elijah and the people of Israel now. God answers with fire. He renews his covenant. Baal and his prophets have been destroyed. The covenant is renewed. Right worship is restored. Rain is falling. This is the turning point in the story. It has to be, right? That's what Elijah thinks. That's what the author has us as readers poised to think. This is the moment that changes everything for Ahab and Jezebel and the people, right? Wrong. See, Ahab, he, he races down the mountain to tell his wife, Queen Jezebel, all that he has just witnessed. It hasn't rained for three years, and as Ahab pulls into the palace, he is soaked and muddy from the dousing torrents of rain that are still falling. And as he rushes into the palace, muddy footsteps behind him and a puddle forming at his feet, he recounts all that he has just seen to Jezebel. But rather than turning back to Yahweh, she just gets angrier and angrier. And she only strengthens her commitment to Baal. She doesn't change. Instead of turning to Yahweh, she vows to murder Elijah within 24 hours. The text doesn't speak to this explicitly in this moment, but Ahab's silence in this moment just sticks out to me vividly. He says nothing. He doesn't object, at least not that's recorded for us. He doesn't, he doesn't object to what Jezebel says. He doesn't say, no, you can't do that. You can't. Did you, did you hear what I just told you? Did you see what Elijah has just done? You can't murder him. Even after all that Ahab has done, even after all that he's just seen, it's as if in this moment, once he's standing again next to Jezebel, he seems like, oh yeah, what, what, what was I thinking? You're right, Jezebel. We, we can't stop worshiping Baal. Have you ever thought to yourself, or maybe you've been in a conversation with a friend and they've said something like this to you, if only God would just do some kind of a dramatic sign, would make himself so obvious, so real and powerful, then I would believe. If he would just, just show, give me a sign, then I would commit myself fully to him and never look back. Now, Ahab got that sign. I mean, fire coming down from heaven. It's a pretty dramatic sign. God is real. He's here. He's showing up in direct response to a prayer, fire from heaven. This isn't a coincidence. He got the sign. And he's not changed. Jezebel saw the results. It's raining now for the first time in three years. She isn't changed. You see, we don't need more signs. We need softer hearts. Elijah, he's outside the palace. He's waiting for news. You can imagine him standing under the overhang of the palace and there's rain still coming down and, and he's waiting to, to hear 
What did the queen think? Waiting to celebrate this, this work, this turning point in the nation's history, this, this beginning, this is the start of a, of a renewal, of an awakening. It has to be. And finally, the queen's messenger arrives. And Elijah's got to be thinking, when's the feast? He's, he's hungry. We're, let's celebrate. And the messenger shows up. Hear the message from the queen. Elijah, you are a dead man. By this time tomorrow, you will be a rotting corpse. That's the message from the queen. And so just a day after Elijah has arrived back in his homeland, he's been exiled for three years, one day after he's arrived back in Israel, he has to run again. And, and we can't miss this in the story. As it sometimes God fails our expectations. Sometimes God fails our expectations. And if it happened to Elijah, it certainly can happen to us. That you believe that God should do this thing for you. That because you know it's what you need, it's what's best for you. And you pray and you say, God, would you make this happen? I know this is what's, what's best. This is what I need. God, would you just do it? Do this for me. And instead, he does nothing. Or it seems like he does nothing. Or perhaps even worse, he seems like he does the opposite. Or something to make it worse. And you can't figure it out. In these moments, you... You start to wonder, does God really care? Does he, is he actually hearing me? Does he exist? Does he love me? Have I done something wrong? And I think, at least sometimes, that those moments are actually even more painful the better you know God. I mean, if you're, if you're not a Christian and something bad happens to you, if you, or if you don't really believe in God and something bad happens to you, you may be sort of generally angry at, at God or at the universe that has dealt you this hand or you're upset about it. But if you are a person who's committed their life to following Jesus, and you've gone to really know him, and you've been following him a long time. I mean, you've experienced his, his goodness and his care for you, his love. And you've been trying to obey him and do what he wants and follow his will and, and make difficult choices along the way to do that. And then he fails your expectations. Maybe even seems to fail his promises to you. That, I think, can almost hurt worse Maybe you feel betrayed. Maybe you don't want to go on anymore. Maybe you just want to give up. And this is exactly where we find Elijah in verses 3 and 4. He's, he's giving up. He's, he's finished. He's done. He says, then Elijah was afraid, verse 3. And he arose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, if you remember, we said earlier in this series that at this point, Israel is, is split. There's been a civil war. It's split into two parts. Israel's in the north, and the southern part is called Judah. He's left again, his homeland of Israel. He's in the land of Judah. 
And he leaves his servant there, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. And you can begin to see where Elijah's coming from, can you? I mean, if, if this sort of Mount Carmel, fire from heaven, rain from the sky moment, that sort of display of power and love, faithfulness and loyalty, if that isn't going to make a difference, if that's not going to change people's hearts, if, if that's not going to turn Ahab and, and Jezebel back, then what's the point, God? Why, why go on? Maybe Elijah thinks, I'm the problem. Yeah, I, I'm just not being faithful enough. Or, or even if he doesn't think he's the problem, maybe he just says, I just can't handle this anymore. I'm a failure. I'm done. I'm finished. All of this isn't making a difference. So God, would you just take my life? Would you just end it here? Some of you here this morning have, have prayed that prayer before. He said, God, take my life. I don't want to go on. Maybe perhaps you haven't gotten that far. I hope you haven't gotten that far of being in that place of such a depth of sorrow that you've prayed that, but maybe you've felt that at times. I just want you to know if you have felt that, if you have prayed those words, if you have cried out those words, that you're not alone. Moses asked God to kill him. Job asked God to kill him. Jonah asked God to kill him. Elijah here says, God, would you kill me? Uh, King David wrote psalm after psalm that's filled with, with longing and despair, wondering where God was asked, asking how, how long he was going to, to have to endure, how long God would abandon him. If you've had those feelings... If you've prayed those prayers, you're in good company. And I just want you to know this morning that those prayers in Scripture, those prayers of lament and mourning and grief and despair are just as much your prayers to pray as are the ones of thanksgiving and praise and joy. See, sometimes God fails our expectations and sometimes His people are racked with despair. And yet, I actually think this is one of the most compelling parts of the Christian narrative about the world. It's one of the things that makes me trust that the story is actually true. And that is that the Bible doesn't shy away from displaying or wrestling with the darkest parts of life. It doesn't ignore them. It it doesn't tell us that we should just kind of press on and, and just pretend they're not there or just get tougher. It doesn't tell us that they're an illusion or that we just need to detach. Rather, it states them in all of their agonizing reality. See, God doesn't expect us to hide our feelings. 
I mean, how could we anyway if he really does exist and knows everything? We, we just can't hide our feelings from him. But he doesn't even expect us to sort of try to dress up those feelings or polish them when we come to him in prayer. Elijah, he's not rebuked for praying, God, would you kill me? He isn't condemned for praying that. And again, over and over again in the Psalms, the Bible's prayer book, we are giving examples of lament and prayers of sorrow born from places of anguish. But even by their very existence, they demonstrate a trust in a God that's being cried out to. Jim Collins, the uh, author who's written a lot on, on business and companies, a number of years ago wrote a book called Good to Great. And in that book, he talks about a phenomenon called the Stockdale Paradox. It was named after Admiral James Stockdale, who was a prisoner of war during the Vietnam War. And Stockdale pointed out that that people who survived the experience of, of being prisoners of war weren't those who kept holding out a naive hope that they were just going to be rescued very soon. Stockdale said the ones who held out that hope, they were the ones who said, we're, we're going to, to be out by Christmas, and then Christmas would come, and Christmas would go, and then they say, well, we're going to be out by Easter, and then Easter would come, and Easter would go, and then Thanksgiving, and then it would be Christmas again, and they died of a broken heart. Stockdale said those who managed to survive the ordeal were those who never gave up faith that they would prevail in the end, regardless of the difficulty, but who also continued to face the most brutal facts of their current reality. This is exactly what we find in the biblical laments. Men and women crying out to God about the brutal facts of their current reality while still clinging, even if only faintly, to the hope that God will prevail in the end. After her death, um, became known that Mother Teresa struggled deeply with these feelings of, of God's absence, of wondering if he was really with her, of, of not feeling his nearness. And sometimes I think we have the expectation that those people who, who we sense really and truly know God the best will, will not wrestle with these feelings, won't have this experience of despair or depression, or won't have a sense of God's absence. But when you look both at people's lives who are recorded for us in the pages of Scripture as well as men and women throughout the history of the church, what you find is just the opposite. It is often those who seem to know God best who struggle the most with feeling despair, who find themselves in seasons of wondering, God, where are you? C.S. Lewis writes, Does God then forsake just those who serve him best? Well, he who served him best of all said near his tortured death, Why hast thou forsaken me? When God becomes man, that man of all others is least comforted by God at his greatest need. Lewis says, There is here a mystery which, even if I had the power, I might not have the courage to explore. 
Meanwhile, little people like you and me, if our prayers are sometimes granted beyond all hope and probability, had better not draw hasty conclusions to our own advantage. If we were stronger, we might be less tenderly treated. If we were braver, we might be sent with far less help to defend far more desperate posts in the great battle. See, no other faith is so honest. G.K. Chesterton wrote that Christianity, he says, I have found only one religion which dared to go down with me into the depths of myself. Have you told God how you feel? I mean, how you really feel. You don't have to hide it. For one, he knows already, and he can take it. He can take the rawest you have to give. And in doing that, in pouring out your heart, just beginning where you're at, which might even be saying, God, I don't even know if I believe in you right now. In that, you may just find a little more trust if you do pray. And I know that in the midst of those kinds of moments, often the last thing we want to do in feeling God's absence and feeling like he's not there is to turn and and pray to that person that we feel like has abandoned us. But it's the only way. Cry out to him. Tell him where you're at. If you find that you're in that kind of a place of despair, know that you don't have to carry that alone either. That's why when God calls us to himself, he doesn't just call us as individuals, but he calls us into a church, into a family, into a people where we can carry that together. God, would you just kill me already? That's where Elijah is at. And God says no. And think about all the prayers that Elijah has prayed that God has already said yes to. Prayer after prayer. And and in the New Testament, Elijah is held up in the book of James as the example of the person who gets their prayers answered. James says, look at Elijah. He's the kind of righteous person whose prayers get answered. But not here. Not this prayer. God has said yes over and over and over again. But to this prayer, God says no. And in fact ironically, this is a prayer that that God never answers for Elijah. Elijah is one of the few people in all of Scripture never to die. More on that in a few weeks. God actually never answers this prayer for Elijah. You see, Jezebel had sent Elijah a messenger of death. And now God sends Elijah a messenger, an angel, the same word in Hebrew, for life. Verse 5. And Elijah lay down, and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank. And he lay down again. I love this moment in the story. 
Elijah, he's out in the wilderness. He's disappointed, despairing. He prays for death. And how does God respond? By giving him a nap and a snack. Right? I mean, he basically treats him like a toddler. Right? If, you, if you've been the parent of a toddler, if you've seen a toddler, right, when your kid is melting down, what do you, you give him a nap and a snack, and then they start to feel better. And God's not patronizing Elijah here. Far from it, he's a good father. He's a good father to Elijah and to you. He treats us as his children. And he gives us what we need, even if it's as mundane and as simple and as ordinary as a nap and a snack. It's the ordinariness of this that stands out to me. There isn't some miraculous moment. God doesn't come and and give him this grand prayer to pray. He just gives him food and water and a nap. You see, God has created us as creatures, as finite. He knows we're just human. We're dependent, fragile. None of us is is a superhero. None of us is self-sustaining. Not even the grand kind of person, figure in the story like a Moses or an Elijah. We depend on him for everything. And so God gives He doesn't give Elijah what he asked for, but he does give him what he needs. And he continues in tenderness to care for Elijah. Verse 7, And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. For the journey is too great for you. Those final words of verse 7 were the words that ended up resonating with me throughout the week. The journey is too great for you. I never really noticed them in the story before. And, and I don't want to make too much of them, but, but those were the words that just continued to echo in my heart and mind this week. And, and this is so typical of how God works, at least in my life, because in, in, in an ordinary week, I do my sermon study on Monday morning, I do a little bit of work on Tuesday, and then I write a solid first draft, sometimes I'm even completely done, by early Wednesday afternoon. But not this week. Somehow there were so many extra meetings, and and every time it seemed like I did get a a minute to, to sit down and work on the message, it seemed like something came up that had to be dealt with right then and there that couldn't be put off or delayed. And so Thursday, as I was driving to yet another meeting with only a few hundred measly words written of a sermon that's normally done 24 hours earlier than that, I was just feeling overwhelmed. God, why is this message so hard to write this week? Why does this feel so hard? Why are you letting this happen to me? And then suddenly, as I'm sitting there at a stoplight at 4.35 in Metcalf on Thursday afternoon, it hit me, the journey is too great for you. Of course, I said, this is exactly how God works. If I'm going to preach a message on despair and being overwhelmed, he's just not going to let that be an easy sermon to write. The journey is too great for you. Have you felt that? It's too great for you. 
your failing marriage, it, it's too great for you. Infertility, loneliness, depression, your failing body, your addictions, your temptations, your struggles at work, struggles as parenting, and caring for aging parents, all of it, it is too much for you. And you see, we were never meant to, to have such fragile bodies. We weren't meant to carry such heavy loads and wounded souls. Sin and death were never meant for this world. And you and I, were, we were never meant to carry this on our own. The journey is too great for us. And God knows that it's too much for us. He never intended us to carry this alone. And that's where grace steps in, where it floods in. It, it, it comes into our weakness, and that's when we're our strongest. It's one of the greatest paradoxes in all the Scripture, but then we, we are, are at our weakest that, that is actually where we paradoxically become the strongest because God's glory and strength is on display. And our desperation, even in our humiliation, that's when we see our need for help. It's in these places of weaknesses that we, we have to look to, to find strength somewhere else. That we're forced to pray. And it's, it's always agonizing. It's always good for us. But recognizing that it's too much for us, what happens next? Well, sometimes God fails our expectations, and sometimes we will be racked with despair, but never does God give up on us. Never does God give up on us. You see, God doesn't abandon Elijah in this moment. He, he provides for him. He shows up. He, he tells him, no, I'm not going to kill you, Elijah. He gives him food. He gives him rest. He acknowledges the suffering that he's experiencing. And then he continues to use him. He continues to send him on his way. This is not the end of Elijah. God doesn't say to Elijah, if you're going to be this kind of weak and despairing and depressed, I'm just not going to use you anymore. And listen this morning, you cannot miss this. Your, your disappointment with God, your depression, your despair, your sense of God's absence, they do not disqualify you from being used by God. There may be times when you feel like you are done with Him, but He's never done with you. He will not give up on you. He still has work for Elijah to do. He still has work for each of you to do. And so if you walk away from this gathering this morning with only one thing kind of stuck in your mind, I, I hope that it's this. And that, that is that, that God will disappoint you. At some point in your life, if you walk with Jesus long enough, He will disappoint you, but He will never leave you. He will disappoint you, but He will never leave you. And the question is, is will that be enough for us? Will His promise that He will never leave us be enough to sustain us in the disappointment? 
for Elijah, at least in this moment, it was. He goes, and even though very little would change, we're going to see as we go on in the story that Ahab and Jezebel, they, they don't turn back. Israel doesn't turn back. That Elijah never really sees this kind of great work of God turning the hearts of his people back to himself come to completion. But God is with him. Elijah later in this passage in verse 8, he goes to Mount Horeb, which is also called Mount Sinai. But Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives and he comes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he pours out his heart in anguish to the Father and asks that the cup might be taken away and is told no. And then he goes to another mountain, Golgotha, the place of the skull, the place of death. You see, Jesus knows what it's like to plead with the Father and be told no. He knows the depth of disappointment and despair. Imagine on the cross, Jesus felt every sin, every tragedy, every disappointment, depression, illness, every death for everyone, everywhere, at all time. He knows what it's like so we can know that wherever we're at, whatever we're feeling, no matter how disappointed we are, we can know that He loves us. That whatever the reason we may be suffering, it isn't because He doesn't love us. That's what the cross proclaims to you. That you may not know why you're suffering. You may never know why you're suffering. But I can tell you with assurance, the one reason that you aren't suffering... The one reason that God, the one reason it can't be that God has allowed suffering in your life, it can't be that God doesn't love you. The cross says, I love you no matter what. You may be suffering, but my lack of love for you isn't the reason that you're suffering. Yes, the journey is too great. It's too great for all of us. Too great for me, too great for you, but it's not too great for him. He longs to walk with you. And when you can no longer walk, He will even carry you. God will disappoint you, but He will never leave you. Will that be enough for you? And of course, none of this is resolved for Elijah, certainly not at the end of this text. He doesn't know what's going to come next for good or for bad. And yet he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food for 40 days and for 40 nights to Mount Horeb, the Mount of God. He does the next thing that God has called him to do. Will God's presence, his promise to never leave us, be enough for us? to do the same. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that you have sent us Jesus who has promised that he will never leave us or never forsake us, that he will be with us always, even to the very end of the age. And I pray that as we celebrate the communion meal together, that you would give us a fresh sense 
of the reality of that promise as we celebrate the new covenant, the forgiveness of sins that make possible the promise that Jesus will never leave or forsake us. I pray this in his name. Amen.